someone said to me, well, I'll be happy if my child becomes anything but an art historian. And I hadn't <laughs> told them what I do. And so I thought, okay. <laughs> but I think it's one of those things that gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of, you know, people look at it as like an elite degree. Mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of really interesting practical applications. You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a conversation with graduate students about their research journeys at the University of Victoria. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host, Liz MacArthur, and joining me today in the studio is Allie McDonald, who is in the second year of her Master's in Art History here at UVic. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, so let's, uh, right off the bat, talk a bit about uh, more specifically what you're doing in art history. Okay, so um, my research focuses on the 18th century. <laughs> I'm looking particularly at England and I like to kind of space it out, space it out with um, looking at different elite classes. So I'm not looking at the lower classes, um, mainly just because they didn't leave as much material culture behind. Hmm. Um, and I'm really looking at gossip, and I want to see how, sort of how gossip interacted in the culture and how gossip is sort of part of the world in which these material objects live. Mm-hmm. Um, and what can we learn about? artworks and material culture and people's lives from what they say in gossip, or what they don't say in gossip. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm sort of looking at three specific case studies that focus on gossip. I'm looking at negative gossip. I like to sort of see the juicier stuff. <laughs> but yeah, sort of what can gossip tell us about people's lives that we don't get from prescriptive literature or from just the material object alone? So when you're saying the material object, what are you talking about? So in my case, I am looking at paintings. So I'm looking at three specific case studies of elites. Uh, one is of a, a lord, Lord Cooper. One is of Lady uh, Sarah, she's Sarah Lennox, but Lady Bunbury in my context. And the third one, I'm looking at John Wilkes, who is a politician in the period. Hmm. Uh, and I am looking at full, sort of larger, in one case, a larger oil painting. And in the other cases, I'm looking at conversation pieces. And essentially what we mean when we say that is that it's a smaller domestic kind of painting. Hmm. So rather than what you're sort of used to seeing grand manner scale, this is almost like what you'd hang in the living room. Okay. Yeah. And they're portraits? They are. They're all portraits. Uh, two of them are by Zoffany, uh, who is sort of my my main my main guy, mm-hmm. um, looking at, um, because he's not that well studied, and I think his work deserves to be studied. So I'm kind of trying to bring him out as much as possible. Huh. Yeah. Oh, so tell me a little bit about him. I don't know that name at all. So Johann Zoffany was a, an 18th century painter. Um, he was born in Germany, and his training started in the German court system. Um, and then he went to Italy and did sort of the, the traditional artist tour of Italy. And then around some scandal, around a marriage that may or may not have been the right thing to do, he went to England. <laughs> and he sort of made a name for himself doing portraits. He became one of the preeminent conversation piece painters of the period. And really, people sort of tend to say he, he kind of captures the history of the period um, and they use it more in like a derogatory way it's not so creative Um, Mm. but I think his work it does it captures the history of the period but there's so much stuff going on beyond the layers of what sort of just recording that's going on Um, and so his work is sort of really multi-layered and really multifaceted and 
but no one really acknowledges that as much as maybe they should do. Hmm. So, yeah, I think he's... So in what way do you, are you seeing these other layers beyond just the sort of capturing the history phrase that you mentioned? So, for example, one of the paintings that I'm looking at uh, is of Lord Cooper. Um, and essentially, he was kind of a jerk. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he, His family had been ennobled only sort of 40-ish years prior to him becoming a, a lord. And he went to Florence on the main grand tour and then decided, well, I'm happy here. I'm never coming home. Mm. Um, so he commissioned Zoffany to do this portrait of his engagement to um, an English woman who he finally sort of, after numerous debacles in Florence around whether he should get married or just have affairs or what he was going to do, hmm. um, commissioned this portrait. And so in some ways, yes, people have looked at it and the fashion, what we can see about the fashion of the time is sort of, I mean, air quote, historically accurate. Right. <laughs> um, but there's so many layers. So one of the things that's going on as far as the gossip around him is that he had been a Sasebo, which is essentially, it's sort of like a playboy. He was a, he hooked himself up with some elite married women and acted as their confidant and lover and all these different things, but that did not earn him good press in England. So he needed to sort of counteract that by marrying this English woman. And to sort of memorialize that, he created this painting. So the painting does have, I mean, it's of his home. There are pieces we know he owned, but hanging behind the couple is an allegorical scene that talks about sort of the a marriage taking place despite all the negative impacts around it. Hmm. And so essentially what he's doing with this painting is he's sort of responding to all of the gossip in this painting and saying, through this allegorical scene, this marriage will take place and you all best just like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, can you describe the allegorical scene? Uh, is this something that is like a well-known, uh, like people looking at the painting would say, oh, that's, you know, the story of blah, blah, blah. And I would, I, they can identify that immediately. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a marriage taking place in the Temple of Hymen. Uh, and essentially what's going on is there's a young couple, uh, sort of a heroic, stoic young man and his wife in the gauzy dress standing in front of the altar of Hymen. There are respective fates and all of these different sort of um, allegorical people. Um, there's a personification of Arno, the river. And what's happening is Hercules is fighting off the personified vision of Calumny, who's shown as this sort of decrepit, aged woman with sagging breasts and wagging tongue and drool and all of these things that are associated with the negative aspects of Calumny. But Hercules, by stepping in and shunning Calumny and allowing this marriage to take place, hmm. is essentially a codified message that he is pushing away the calumnies of what's happening in Florence, of what's happening with the gossip, to allow his marriage to take place to his sort of much younger eligible bride. Hmm. Yeah. So when you're talking about, you've mentioned he was responding to the gossip. Are you talking about uh, the subject of the painting or are you talking about the painter responding? The subject of the painting. Oh, okay. So Lord Cooper himself. There's a bit of debate whether Lord Cooper commissioned the painting or his father-in-law commissioned the painting. Um, but I think given the gossip surrounding him, given the fact that the painting has the message it does, I think Lord Cooper commissioned the painting as a coded message. It was not mm. simply meant to be a snapshot. Um, it's absolutely a performative piece. And what I mean with that is that people who see it, they'll get the message. It, it does something more than just has an aesthetic quality. Mm -hmm. um, it's meant to act on you. 
That's very interesting. I, I like when you initially mentioned it, I th- thought maybe the painter responding to the gossip mm-hmm. thought, I will put this thing, it'll be kind of funny and, you know, maybe people will get it. But I guess being a painting, it might you might not have gotten that far if the subject disagreed with the message or something like that. Yeah, I think Zoffin is kind of an interesting painter because part of what he likes to seem to do is to play with like he likes to put his dog in paintings hmm. um, and sort of play with the reality of the scene. Um, so I think Zoffany was certainly, I would like to think he was on board and kind of liked the idea that he was messing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that it was Cooper who needed to send the message. So it was most likely, I think from my research, he was probably the one that commissioned it to have that message to the Florentine public to the writers from England who were living in Florence and reporting back to England, um, nope, this is what I'm doing and this is, it's, it's going to be good. Mm. And so the message then is, you know, it, I, I'm going to be better behaved after this and I'm going to get married and you can have faith in me or? No, I think it's more just he's found a, a proper English bride and... He's still not going back to England. They want him to go back to England. Mm-hmm. So he's still kind of being a bit of a rebel, I suppose, in that way. Um, but he's just sort of putting to rest the fact that he was... So some of the gossip, for example, was that he was just acting as a SIBO, essentially wasting his time, becoming um, you know, enamored with these women he could never have. He was neglecting his position at the House of Lords in England. Um, and by sort of creating this painting, he's doing something right. Ah. He's having this marriage. It's to an English woman. They'll have children raised in the Church of England. It will be as it should be, um, even though he's not coming back to England. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So it's sort of like an olive branch that he's extending maybe to people that would be, or not an olive branch, but. Yeah. I mean, you could kind of say that he's, I guess he's he's very cognizant of what they're saying about him Mm. and knowing what a I suppose pompous, self-absorbed kind of person he was. He needs to have it. He needs to respond. I think, mm-hmm. um, and this is potentially one way he does it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so that's one of the paintings you're looking yes. at. One of the case studies, and you're looking at two other ones. Yes, and they're by the same artist. So one is by the same artist, mm-hmm. and another one I'm kind of debating still between a couple of different paintings mm. as my my argument develops for my final case study. Um, but the second painting I'm looking at is by Zoffany, mm-hmm. and it's of Wilkes and his daughter. Um, and it's it's an interesting painting. Um, it's far, I, I started getting into this because I liked fashion, um, and I studied fashion in my undergraduate and did a J. Kira with fashion and sort of how that played into social performance and that kind of thing. So I originally looked at this painting way back when, when I started my MA thinking I was going to do all this stuff about fashion mm-hmm. because the daughter's dress was so unique. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm looking at it for the relationship between the two of them and what that relationship says about Wilkes mm-hmm. um, and looking at sort of the intimacy in that father-daughter relationship and how he's using that to talk about himself in a positive light. Ah. Uh, Also responding to gossip in that case? Yeah, I mean, it's a little less pointed, I think. Um, Hmm. Because he was a radical politician, there's just sort of stuff happening. One of my case, primary case sources, Horace Walpole writes a lot about him. Um, he even writes about this painting directly, saying, I forget the exact quote, but something along the lines of sort of the devil looking at Miss Sin. So, you know, he's not <laughs> he's not well-liked by all. Right. <laughs> so um, 
it's an interesting painting in that way hmm. uh, when you combine it with with the different diaries and the diarists. So when you, you said that the third one, you're debating which painting you're going to choose. Yes. Uh, what are you looking for at this point? What is going to help you make that decision? So my third case study, I've decided it will be Lady Bunbury. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a rather famous affair. Um, and I got into her because I was looking at the Beaumont. So an elite group of people that were sort of of the scene of fashionable London in the season. So essentially that meant they came to London during the season and shared this sort of elite status and elite taste. So I came to her looking through that. And what was interesting is that she was exiled Mm -hmm. from the group following her affair. Um, And so in that case, I wanted to look at how gossip added to her exile. So I'm trying to find a painting. I'm sort of debating if I want to have a before and an after painting Mm. or do I want to sort of how I want to incorporate the painting into that discussion is where I'm at with that third case study. So are you looking at a painting that is a before and an after painting? Right now I am. Mm -hmm. um, But they're not necessarily showing as clearly as I would like what I'm hoping to show. Mm -hmm. So I'm still kind of looking around, debating what the right image is for that. I, I know that she's got the good gossip. I know that there are fantastic primary sources that gossip extensively about her. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the right painting to sort of bring that out so that I'm not going too far to the history side and straying from my art historical roots. Right. Because um, I want to make sure that I have that balance. Um, so what are you looking for in the painting? Uh, what is maybe more restrained in these paintings that you would like to see a little more um, amplified? I'm not entirely sure, to be mm. honest. Partly I'm kind of interested to see if if things change in the way that she's shown mm. um, before and after her exile. Because as far as the material culture of the Beaumont goes, it, there there's a fantastic study, it's called The Beaumont, um, and it talks all about how you're in and how you're out, and if you're in, sort of what that means, and if you're out, what that means. And part Mm. of that is material culture. Part of that is fashion. Um, So I'm sort of trying to find portraits that help amplify the ideas that came from that historical study so that I can transfer it to an art historical study. Mm. So can I find paintings that really show what this author has argued so well um, and apply it to an art historical lens? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So that balance is, uh, is, that's an interesting balance to try and maintain sort of those visual um, representations of this historical stuff that you're working with. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm really interested in interse- interdisciplinary work. Hmm. Um, and I've been really lucky that I've been able to work with a fantastic supervisor in my department and also a fantastic supervisor um, in the history department. And between the two of them, getting interdisciplinary understanding um and you know simon was joking that i've become too much of a historian with all of my primary sources but i think it's important to blend the two Mm -hmm. um but i also want to make sure that i bring everything back to the material culture because i am an art historian right so yeah uh let's talk about these primary sources so i guess when you were initially on the hunt for gossip how did that process go in finding good gossip essentially it was kind of luck of the draw, to be honest. Um, I was looking for writing a conference paper, um, and one painting, what had been written about it was not very much, um, hence a good case study. Mm. But what there was enough of a sort of hint that he was 
not well enough liked. Somebody had to be saying something about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to Horace Walpole, who has volumes upon volumes upon volumes in the library, and literally just sat in the stacks reading everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from him, I kind of went over to Lady Cook uh, and her stuff. And essentially, it was sort of trial and error, reading through all of the, the primary sources that I can get my hands on. I would love to get to the archives in England. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see, hopefully this summer. Um, because there is so much stuff in there that's not included in this as far as that. But then there's also some fantastic books like The Satirical Gaze that look at published gossip in the form of satire. So kind of blending all of those different sources and literally just sitting in the stacks and reading. <laughs> <laughs> and now you said, um, sorry, I've immediately forgotten the name, but the 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 one with all the uh, the volumes. Yes, Walpole. Walpole. Yeah. Um, who? What was he doing? Is he a diarist and he's just recording things, or he's sort of a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. Um, from my point, for what I need, yes, it's his diaries and his letters back and forth that mm-hmm. are the most use. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it must be fun reading people's diaries from long ago. It is. It's It's funny. I was, um, I mean, it's kind of off topic from my research, but I was doing a, a transcription project looking at the World War One records. Mm. And it's funny how going from the 18th century to World War One to now, people bitch about the same stuff. <laughs> and it's fantastic. Right. I mean, I think it's really great that there's, I mean, it's all con- like contextualized. Mm-hmm. Um but gossip, gossip is great. People love to do it. And it's a, I think it's a fantastic source because not only are you listening and you're looking at the context of what's in there, like what they're actually gossiping about, but there's so much that it can tell you about sort of the social world in which gossip is living. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gossip kind of tells us about social control and morals and all of these sort of controls around people because they wouldn't be gossiping about it if there wasn't some system that they were sort of outrage they were acting against. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not, yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about it, it's not unlike our present day where gossip is a big deal and a lot of people make a lot of money on, on gossip, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things I brought up in my presentation is, you know, you only have to think about the Kardashians mm-hmm. who, well, they got started with a sex tape, did they not? Which is sort of, mm-hmm, I think you know, so, yeah. is gossip right there. <laughs> and everyone wanted to know, is it real? What's going on with that? So, yeah, gossip is still a living, breathing thing that is is in an interesting way. It's still an interesting lens, I think, to look at society through. Mm-hmm. Because whether you love or you hate them, people still talk about the Kardashians. Yeah. Um, and they have made an enormous fortune off us gossiping about them. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's true. Um uh, are you interested in modern day gossip at all? You said you had an interest in fashion. Uh, are you interested in fashion from uh, a different era? Are you interested in current fashion? And are, are you interested in current gossip? So for my research, not so much interested in current gossip. Right. Although I do like, I love when things kind of intersect. Mm-hmm. Um, because in a way, the Beaumont were kind of like the celebrities. So it's almost like they were gossiping about the Kardashians, about all of this sort of stuff that's happening in the in the celebrity media mm-hmm. um and as far as the fashion goes i did get started looking at sort of stewart fashion and i really wanted to look at how fashion is part of self-fashioning mm-hmm. so in that respect i think i'm still interested in sort of the gamut of, spa- of fashion because even you know what you wear to this interview or what you wear to the library 
it's sort of an interesting way to say who you are that day. Mm, yeah. um, and I love the fact that fashion, despite the you know myriad of changes over the periods that I've looked at, it still is a way to say something about yourself before you've had a chance to speak. Um, and fashion really has a sort of, again, the performativity, the power of the visual mm-hmm. is so fantastic to me in fashion. Yeah, it is a powerful thing, and it's interesting to see, uh, you know, what people choose and what it says about them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, okay, Jay Cura, first of all, you mentioned a Jay Cura project. Yes. Can you uh, let our audience know what Jay Cura is? It's beyond the jargon, so I it is. To, yes. to define everything. Yes, Jay Cura. So Jay Cura is a Jamie Castle's research, undergraduate research award. Okay. It is fantastic. I would recommend everyone give it a shot, um, including my sister, Murphy, for listening, do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time anybody has given a direct message to someone on the show. I like it. Um, so, yeah, it's fantastic. The J. Kira mm-hmm. Fair this year is on, what, it's on the 7th? Or the, no, it's on next Wednesday, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of Idea Fest now. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's a small grant that helps uh, undergraduate, upper-level undergraduate students work on an independent project. Um, oftentimes, for example, in my case, it's tied to your honors thesis. Mm. Um, but it's a fantastic way to do a longer term project that kind of helps you, if you're thinking of grad school, get your feet wet in a bigger project that's that's self-directed and you work one-on-one with a professor, kind of in a super supervisor role. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would highly recommend Cura to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that was part of your undergrad. So let's talk a little bit about um, your sort of journey to grad school. Yeah, and, totally. Uh, what, talk about your undergrad and how that sort of led you here, if it did. Yeah. So um, I started my undergrad at Camosun and did everything. I did cultural anthropology, forensic anthropology, business, economics, science. I wanted to be a brain surgeon. I wanted to be a dermatologist. <laughs> I wanted to be everything. I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and then I came to UVic and found art history kind of roundabout. I needed an elective. I wanted something that seemed fun. Um, and then I took one of Aaron Campbell's classes and she got me. I was stuck. I drank the Kool-Aid. I was in. Um, so I I sort of really got sort of strong in my art history in third and fourth year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did my uh, honors class with Dr. Catherine Harding, who's now my supervisor. Mm. And she let me go out into the community and I did a research project with a local church. Um, and I cataloged all of their textiles, their ecclesiastical textiles. Mm. And having that experience is really what sort of drove me to grad school. Um, and wanting to do more of that hands-on experience, um, wanting to do projects that were beyond the scope of what you can do in an undergrad. I wasn't, I wasn't finished learning, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and I really wanted to keep going. That's a really interesting project, cataloging textiles for a church. What church did you work with? Um, so I did St. Mary's Church, which is in Oak Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an Anglican church, and they have a fantastic collection of textiles um, because it's a mix of textiles. So right now there's a woman who I hope is still doing it, um, who is updating a lot of the textiles because they're falling into disrepair. Mm. So I wanted to catalog everything they had because it runs the gamut of handmade um, in England, to handmade in Canada, to guild work, to um, commissioned from different companies, to pieces that were given to different ministers um, for specific events. And now that this woman is working on revising the te- textiles, she's looking to the older textiles and creating new pieces 
in a similar style, but using the techniques that she knows. So she doesn't know how to embroider. Mm. Um, so instead, she's doing quite a little bit of machine sewing and then adding decorative elements that are already pre-made oh, to okay. have a similar effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a fantastic, it is a fantastic project. I mean, you could, mm-hmm. I could probably continue to do it and maybe I will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to see the different okay. applications of art history because I think um, if you're not familiar with it, um, and I haven't been that familiar with yeah. art history, uh, you may not, I wasn't aware really of where it can be applied to different areas of even community. This is like an interesting community building project. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I think art history is one of those Someone was saying we were we were out somewhere and joking about careers, and someone said to me, "Well, I'll be happy if my child becomes anything but an art historian." And I hadn't <laughs> told them what I do, and so I thought, "Okay." <laughs> but I think it's one of those things that gets overlooked, mm. um, and sort of you know people look at it as like an elite degree. Mm. But I think there are a lot of really interesting practical applications as far as working with different communities. Um, there have been some really interesting community projects, like um, the church that I worked with, to keep communal heritage and keep communal memory. Um, One of the things that I discovered working with this church is that every time we pulled out a textile, there was a story associated to it. Mm. So, I mean, in some cases, they were fantastically hilarious. Um, You know, bitter rivalries over the embroidery of this textile and sort of who should have done what and why didn't they do this and all these different (laughs) things. But what came out of it was that if if this textile were to be thrown out or were to be lost, there would be no sort of impetus for that story. Um, and I love the fact that with community archives like that, it is such a communal memory. There is so many people that this has a deep personal meaning for, and that just kind of adds an extra layer to why these pieces are so important. Mm-hmm. So how uh, much longer do you plan on studying right now in doing your master's? So fingers crossed, um, and the stars align, I'll be done by August. Okay. Um, that's my plan. Mm-hmm. And then I'm hoping to do my PhD. Okay, so you're going to carry on, yeah. Yeah, I'll take a year off. Mm-hmm. Um, I need a break. Right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm hoping to do a PhD in the UK. Oh. Still focusing on the 18th century. Potentially looking at gossip. I emailed my potential supervisor today, and we'll see if she says yay or nay. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully she says yes. We'll see. So, yeah. What other aspects of gossip would you like to explore? I want to extend it outward um, Mm -hmm. and look at across the different classes. Um, People have done some work on sort of vice, um, aristocratic vice. Mm. So looking at lower classes commenting on the upper classes. There hasn't I haven't seen as much, um, and I've just started looking for the reverse of that. So I may there may still be more that I haven't found yet. Mm. Um, But upper classes commenting on lower classes. I want to look across the spectrum as far as geographical regions. Does it make a difference if you're in Scotland, in Wales, in Ireland? If you're on the grand tour, do you have different experiences of gossip? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just sort of interested in seeing where that goes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, where do you hope to uh, do your PhD in the UK? Right now I'm looking at Birkbeck, mm-hmm. um, which is part of the University of College of London. Um, there's a fantastic fantastic scholar there who um it's actually her work that got me stuck on the 18th century Hmm. so I'm hoping to work with her and she's just a fantastically lovely person which I think just makes grad school that much better yeah (laughs) um so yeah I'm hoping to do that I'm also applying at other schools um Mm -hmm. mainly in London and the nice thing about the 18th century is there are also centers for the study of 18th century. So if you're wanting to do interdisciplinary work, which I'm hoping to do, um, these centers have the resources to, t- to touch different 
disciplines, but still being rooted in your own discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just sort of has that, it's sort of like a collaborative working environment that I really like. You're not as siloed necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think collective brain can really help solve certain issues. Yeah. So, yeah. And I guess being in London, you're sort of at ground zero for where you want to be for this kind of study. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I absolutely love UVic, and I'm so glad I stayed. And my supervisor is fantastic. Um, and I probably wouldn't be ready for PhD had I not stayed and, and gone to that experience with her. But just the resources that are there, it's so much easier to just get into an archive rather than having to plan a research trip, can you afford it, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, that sounds very exciting. Uh, yeah. We're um, out of time. That went fast. Yeah, it went by very quickly today. Um, maybe we just felt like we were gossiping or yeah. something. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. Good luck finishing it up and, fi- and de- uh, deciding on your final painting. Yes, thank you. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Maybe by the end of the weekend. That's, that's the goal. All right. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you're interested in being interviewed, please email cfuvcad at uvic.ca. To listen again, you can find a link to the podcast at cfuv.ca.